0: The water park and the bonneted bat, can both be saved? How Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville legacy defines us here, and why Cubans ended up fighting for Russia. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Padgett. In the next hour, we'll look at the clash between a proposed water park at Zoo Miami and conservationists, including Miami's most popular wildlife booster, who want to protect the rare pine rocklands there. We'll also look at the parrot head culture that tropical rock music legend Jimmy Buffett left in Key West and beyond. And we'll examine Cuba's sudden and questioned claim that it's broken up a smuggling ring sending Cubans to fight for Russia in Ukraine. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, benvindo. You've probably never heard of the bonneted bat. Neither had I until this week. But it's the rarest and largest bat in North America. And here in Miami, it's at the center of a high-stakes clash between developers and environmentalists. The issue whether the Miami Wilds water theme park should be built near the protected pine rocklands at Zoo Miami in South Dade. It's a preserve the bat and other endangered species call home. This is one of the thorniest ecology versus economy disputes South Florida has seen in a long time. The Miami Wilds developers insist the 67 acre water park will not harm the pine rocklands or its flora and fauna and that it will be a $3 million-a-year boon to Zoo Miami. But conservationists, including Zoo Miami spokesman Ron McGill, argue it's too much of a risk since Pine Rockland's forest land has all but vanished. After a heated meeting this week, the Miami-Dade County Commission decided to postpone a vote on the almost $100 million water park until September 19th. Which side should prevail? Is there a way both sides can prevail? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now in the studio is WLRN's environmental editor, Jenny Stiletovich, who's been following this debate. With us here also is architect Bernard Sikovic. He's a manager of the Miami Wilds Water Park Development. Welcome to you both.
1: Thanks, Tim. Jenny, I think
0: we have to start here with why environmentalists oppose this water park. First, remind us exactly what a pine rockland's habitat is, and and what is it about the pine rocklands at the Zoo Miami site that they say warrant protection from a project like this?
1: So a pine rockland forest is a forest that's only found in South Florida, the Bahamas, parts of Cuba. It has a limestone forest. Floor, um, mm-hmm. which makes it really uh, special and unique. It has an airy canopy of just those old dade pines. Those are the pines that grow in this forest. Yeah. And so, as it has shrunk over the years, it's in, it's become an oasis for species that can't live anyplace right. and else. Much,
0: and m- many of us, who, like me, who live in South Dade, probably walk by, bike by little tracks of pine rocklands all the time and may not even notice it. Yeah. Right.
1: I mean, yeah. the real pine rockland, you will see that that limestone base. It's rocky. There'll be mm-hmm. pits. With the key deer down in the Keys, love the pineland down there because they're little watering holes. That's one right. of the ways they survive. Mm-hmm. So it was also high ground. It was the pine ridge that mm-hmm. that wrapped its way along the coast and largely got developed over the years. And, um, and
0: less than 3% of, of, of uh, uh, pine rocklands that originally existed on this planet now. S- Right, Remain, yes. and
1: this this track, the Richmond Pine Rockland, was once an old Navy blimp base. Mm-hmm. Um, it was over two thousand acres. Uh, after the war, when the Blimp base was decommissioned, there was damage from a hurricane, the Navy started hand- giving out parcels, donating right. it to University of Miami got some, Miami-Dade County got some, the Coast Guard got some. It was all divvied up, um, but it largely went undeveloped, except for the zoo. Part of it turned was turned into Larry and Penny Thompson Park, right. um, the Department of Defense, a, a satellite field, but it was wide open, and it became this real oasis for some of these species that right. now— you know,
0: like, like the bonneted bat, and like I think the you, bonneted you've, bat, you've, the you've tiger mentioned beetle. about seventeen other uh, endangered species. So, why do the environmentalists believe so ardently that the Miami Wilds Water Park would spell doom for the pine rocklands there, as as well as for the endangered species like the bonneted bat?
1: So, what they're really concerned about is the bonneted bat. This is North America's largest bat found down here. Um, it was, you know. When, when they started looking more closely at this land, and I will say, I said before, it was largely undeveloped for years until the a Walmart project a few years ago got approved on land that UM used to own. That drew a lot of attention and scrutiny to this land. A lot of surveys were done. They were looking at plants and animals. And they discovered this bonneted bat population. Um, they okay. are big bats. They need lots of room to fly and forage. They consume huge amounts of insects. And so they need this big, dark. Open area to forage, and that parking lot is now um, the feeds the largest colony, known colony of bats, of bonneted bats um, that there are and in so the
0: world. I, and so, I also have to just quickly ask, why does Zoo Miami's most recognizable personality, Ron McGill? So strongly opposed it himself, as he wrote in a recent op-ed and and in a letter to the Miami-Dade Commission.
1: Right. So I talked to him, and and he said he regrets not objecting to the Walmart project. That he was afraid that that project was going to do damage to species. Um, he said he didn't speak up, but this time around with Miami Wilds. The, the,
0: the, remind us the Walmart project being.
1: It is on Pine Rockland. It's a, a it's called Coral Reef Commons. And it's and apartments. Um, it's a strip mall, basically. Across There's across from. It's it's right. It's right next door to to the zoo, zoo on Miami. Right. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And so he he, he says he, and he said this regrets time regrets not not having reg- right
1: right regrets not speaking up. Um, and this time he just felt like he had to say something because he felt like this the, another development was going to harm these species even more.
0: Despite the fact that his employer, Zoo Miami, is in favor of this this the project. parks department.
1: Right. 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 Now
0: Bernard. Your developer group, Miami Wilds, argues this water park can, in fact, be built and operated without harming the Pine Rockland site. Take us through the main claims the environmentalists make that you feel are exaggerated or or, or just plain wrong. Well, Tim, thanks
2: thanks so much for the opportunity. Um, first of all, myself and my partners consider ourselves environmentalists. Uh, we're usually on the advocacy side of these types of arguments. But I really appreciate today the opportunity to talk about the science because I think that this conversation has gone in the wrong direction and, frankly, is full of misinformation. So let me take you through what we perceive to be the issues. I've agreed, actually, with everything Jenny said except for one thing. So we we agree the Pine Rockland itself is not an issue because we're not anywhere near the Pine Rockland. The project site is in the parking lot, And one third of the parking lot will be water park. The other two thirds will remain parking lot because the zoo needs the parking and it's already disturbed and there really is no issue. So I agree completely with this issue being boiled down to the Florida bonneted bat. Uh And this this is the place that we feel that our message has not been heard. Um, Everything I'm going to say is public documents we've submitted and transmitted to Dade County. Uh, We know that the mayor, the Parks Department, the county is very concerned about environmental issues. And so are we, frankly. So let me lay out one thing that has not gotten any public awareness. Okay. Um, Part of our lease agreement required that we do uh, an acoustical bonneted bat survey. This was submitted to the county. Uh, basically at the end of December 2022. It's the most recent survey.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But there have been three surveys.
0: And, but, but and, what, but that survey, what, what, what is the main conclusion then? Uh, okay, so we, let, let, let me take, take you that.
2: through that, but I need to explain uh-huh. the the bottom line because this is really an environmental conversation. I uh-huh. want to make sure that that everyone understands the credibility of this particular survey. Uh This was done by Johnson Engineering. They've done more acoustical bat surveys than anyone in Florida. They have offices all over the place. People can check them out. They do everything according to the requirements of fish and wildlife and they use only the best equipment. So what has come out of this, I can give you the bottom line. The Mm -hmm. punchline is the bonneted bats do not forage here. Bonneted bats have three uh, sounds that they make. They make the sound that they make during flight, which is basically, if you live here like I do and you do, you hear the parakeets yapping all the time. Mm -hmm. We don't hear the bats, but they're yapping all the time. Mm -hmm. So those are bat calls. There's another type of call which is social, and -hmm. there's a third type of call which is foraging, basically feeding. Mm So the analysis of bonneted bat calls needs to identify all three. Mm-hmm. In 2012 or 14, the county did its own survey, and they realized that out of all the bat calls in this area, 3% were bonneted bats. They did not have the equipment to identify the different calls. Okay. No. Uh, but let me just finish, sure. if you don't mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Um, the, the, the controversy has really been stirred up by Bat Conservation International, and they published their information without giving us or the county, frankly, any data or backup. They okay. allege that 40% of the bat calls are bonneted bat. This survey that was done by the professional consulting group justifies that it's 3% of the bonneted bats. Okay.
0: Uh, now, we, we do have a caller on the line uh, from calling from Perrine, actually, in South Dade. But before I get to that call real quick, Jenny, I just wanted to ask you, then, given what uh, Bernard has laid out for us here, is this an argument that you think uh, environmentalists, particularly the environmentalists involved in this dispute, would agree with?
1: No. I mean, I think that they would— I, First of all, the Johnson survey, I mean, there are a lot of questions that, that I have about when the survey was done, um, this, the circumstances of the survey, bats— Conservation International is an organization of scientists that they're not the only ones who have done surveys. Zoo Miami, uh, the vet there, Frank Ridgely, they put up bat boxes, they've studied them. And the bottom line too is that the National Park Service, which has to do an environmental impact study to determine damage, hasn't done that yet. So I think part of what you're getting at would be answered by the National Park Service of whether or not there's going to be damage to habitat this, this land is going to be part of their critical habitat when they do that final designation. So, so I guess I would want to know um, what the National Park Service has to say about a private Engineering company that's hired to do a survey.
0: Okay, Bernard, just real briefly, because I do have to take a call, if you could just respond to that. Sure. First
2: mm-hmm. of all, this is not a private engineering company that works for developers. They work for government, they work for counties, and they're a recognized expert. Okay. Did, and they, did you and the, hi- uh, we were required to hire them by the lease. Okay, And we paid for them, but they're an independent consulting group. Okay, let me
0: go to our caller here, Remy from Perrine. He says it's better to let Zoo Miami develop the lot than risk other development. Remy, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Explain what you're uh, getting out there, please.
3: Uh, Thank you. Thank you for taking the call. Uh, Okay, the case of Peacock Park, uh, valuable um, uh, bayfront land that was supposed to be an expansion for Peacock Park years ago in Coconut Grove got turned into a condo development. Even the case of Bicentennial Park, which now became Museum Park, at least we ended up doing something that benefited all the community rather than uh, just allowing developers to get in there when everybody has their back turned. The Mm -hmm. reality is the politics in this county are such that the developers get away with murder. Better to get something that more or less coincides with the Zoo of Miami, that to just have more condos and okay. more Target and more Walmart. All right, thanks Thank very, you.
0: thanks very much, Remy and and Bernard. I, I should uh, let, let you point out your your argument would be t- also that the Miami Wilds has already made some gestures to alleviate some of the environmentalist concerns, such as agreeing to move the location of a hotel. That was part of the water park proposal, correct? Yeah,
2: yeah, I mean, Tim, the this started as as something requested by the county in two thousand six. The voters of the county by sixty percent voted in favor of an entertainment area at the zoo. Mm-hmm. This, this project was not invented by us. We're responding to the county. Okay. It's an economic development project that's going to help the bleeding of the taxpayer money at the zoo, which is to the tune of $20 million a year in losses. Right. So we think we're actually, and, and I want to address one more thing. Our opinion is not only are we not doing harm, we are doing good. We're gonna okay. be helping the zoo get more attendance and we're gonna be taking care of the Pine Rockland, which right. has not been taken care and, of.
0: And I do want to get to that, but what, what you're saying actually then segues, Jenny, <clears throat> to what I wanted to ask you about now, which is if we could remind folks how we got to where we are in this water park dispute, how did this tract of rock, uh, 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 Pine Rocklands come to be available, For a development of this kind in the first place briefly take us through the history of that if you would
1: well i think bernard is right in 2006 there was a voter referendum and 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 voters residents were asked what do you want to see here and they agreed Mm -hmm. that a water park would be a good thing however they said only if it's not built on environmentally sensitive land and that is the turning point that's what conservationists they will say we're not against you know, development, what we are against is building in globally imperiled land like a pine rockland. Okay. Um, and so that that that's sort of set the set the stage for what has turned into nearly two decades and, and of trying and, to get a water park. And, built. And, 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 and,
0: and, <laughs> and speaking of these two decades, then and then remind us, then why did the water park project after getting approved right in, in 2020, if I'm not mistaken, get held up legally early this year? bringing us to where we are now waiting for a Miami-Dade County Commission vote.
1: So so as part of that approval, uh, the county needed to have lease restrictions lifted on land that were put in place um, by the National Park Service. Mm the National Park Service, to, to remove those restrictions, needed to do these environmental impact studies, which I mentioned earlier, that right. would determine would this project harm wildlife. The, a couple of conservation groups who've been following this put in a records request and said, we want to see those studies. Fed said, we, didn't, we never completed them. They then went to court, right. asked a judge to declare the lease agreement unlawful because those studies were not done.
0: I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the dispute over a proposed water park on protected land at Zoo Miami. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Bernard Siskovich, do do you feel it's gotten lost on folks then amid all the shouting um, that the federal government itself does not seem to have a problem with this water park being built on this site, that they, they agreed to lift the restrictions on this land, as Jenny pointed out? And so why would you say they are okay with it?
2: Well, we've had, during the course of this process, I want to emphasize the county has been extremely diligent in making sure that nothing happens at the water park area that would impact either the Pine Rockland or uh, anything related to the Florida bonneted bat. Mm -hmm. The county is great stewards of their environmental holdings. Uh, We needed to do some lot line adjustments because when the county got the land, the lines were drawn in a way that don't coincide with the disturbed area, meaning the area outside of environmental areas, which is the parking lot. Mm-hmm. So we needed the lines adjusted so that they could readjust uh, the area so that we're limited only to the parking lot, which we are. Okay. So, so they decided... Well, we can release the lands because the the parking lot is already disturbed and there are no okay. natural areas there.
0: Okay. We only have thirty seconds left. I want to each ask each of you in just fifteen seconds. Between now and September nineteenth, is there a chance that there could be a compromise of any kind here? Jenny?
1: Um I don't I don't think so. I mean okay. I think also
0: Oh. Uh, and Bernard, same question. Any compromise? I think
2: there's been a tremendous of com- amount of compromise. We invite the science to be revealed. We've never had the okay. audience to reveal the data right. that we
0: have. Well, we'll see then. Bernard Sikovic is an architect with the Miami Wilds Water Park Developer Group. Jenny Stiletovich is WLRN's environment editor. Thanks very much to you both. Appreciate it. Thank you. Still to come, the Margaritaville legacy that Jimmy Buffett left us. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN.
2: Sponge cake.
0: I should have a margarita and a shaker of salt in front of me for this segment, but it's only 1.30 in the afternoon, even though it is 5 o'clock somewhere. As you've no doubt guessed by now, we're going to talk about Jimmy Buffett, the tropical rock music superstar and Key West icon who died from cancer last Friday at age 76, Buffett's hits included Cheeseburger in Paradise, Changes in Latitudes, Changes in Attitudes, and of course, it's 5 o'clock somewhere. But his biggest was the one you're listening to right now, Margaritaville from 1977. The song introduced not only Buffett to the world, but also its setting, Key West. And it ushered in a party-hardy culture of so-called island escapism that's come to define the Keys, if not all, of South Florida. The craze for Margaritaville music and merchandise, fueled by an ardent fan base known as the Parrotheads, made Buffett a billionaire. But has his flip-flops credo also fostered a perhaps too laid-back attitude in this particular latitude? What's your take on the legacy of Jimmy Buffett? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me from, where else, Key West, is Dr. Corey Malcolm. He's lead historian at the Florida Keys History Center and knows a lot about Jimmy Buffett's cultural impact. Corey, welcome. I believe we have Corey with us by Zoom, no? Corey? Well, I was going to ask Corey to remind us Well, I was going to ask Corey to first remind us um, or what Key West was in the era, era that I would call BB, before Buffett. And would we have called it Margaritaville back then? Corey, are you with us? Well, I guess not. Well, I think if Corey were here, what he would have pointed out uh, is that Key West back in, let's say, the, the early to mid-70s was not the Key West, obviously, that we know today. Uh, it, was, it had just been sort of turned over by the the, the, the Navy, uh, the naval base there. And frankly, to tell the truth, one of the pillars of the economy was <laughs> marijuana running. And then along comes Jimmy Buffett in, in the mid-late 70s with this song, Margaritaville, and the entire place, the entire culture of the place, really, transforms. Now, of course, Key West had, back then, uh, in the early part of the century, Hemingway and Sloppy Joe's, for example, the famous bar that was uh, built there in the early part of the 20th century, they'd already given Key West a, a certain tropical escape aura, but that's that was nothing compared to what the song and Jimmy Buffett, Margaritaville brought uh, to to that aura of, of of Key West, and I think uh, Key Keys historians like uh, uh, Corey Malcolm, who are now still, were working to to get him. <laughs> on the line with us here from Key West, I think he'd agree that um, Key West was ripe uh, for the kind of Tiki Hut image overhaul that Buffett brought to the place with with the song Margaritaville. And a lot of that had to do with the the affinity that Buffett had who, for Key West. He was, as let's remember, a, a, an Alabama native. Um, and like a lot of people who fall in love with Key West, he was, he was coming from someplace else. But he, he had such an affinity for Key West, and vice versa. Key West, I think, ended up having a, an affinity for Buffett. And I think then that was why he ended up being so responsible for, this, for the offbeat cultural renaissance that Key West began to be, be known for in the wake of that songs phenomenon, meaning Margaritaville, not to mention uh, the tourism boom that followed. And I'm just checking now then to see if if we've been able to get Dr. Malcolm back on the line with us so that I can let him weigh in on this Jimmy Buffett legacy discussion that we'd like uh, like to have with him. And one of the other Important, uh, I think, um, facets of this discussion uh, about Jimmy Buffett and the Key, Key West is, is is the extent to to which he was responsible for the rather offbeat cultural renaissance that Key West began to be known for in the wake of 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 the the phenomenon of the song Margaritaville, not to mention the tourism boom that followed, as I mentioned. Um, and I think. A big question to ask is whether Key West formed this unique sense of self it's so famous for today. Would it have developed that sense of self without the Jimmy Buffett factor? And I am told that we now have Dr. Corey Malcolm back with us from Key West. Uh, Corey, are you there?
4: I am. (laughs) Thank goodness.
0: Sorry sorry we lost you there.
4: Yeah, no, I've been having a conversation with you, but uh, um, it wasn't coming through, so I apologize for that. No idea what went on.
0: Well, Corey, let's let let, let me go first back to what what I was talking about. Let's let, let's first remind ourselves what Key West was in the area that, as I say, I would call BB before Buffett. what yeah. Would we have called it Margaritaville back then? Oh no,
4: no, uh, Key West. Uh, you know when. Jimmy Buffett got here what in late 1971. Key West was uh, it was a Navy town, right? You no, know, uh, there was a big Navy base here, uh, and uh, um, that was really the big driver of of the Key West economy, and and. Uh, um, really set the tone for, for the community in a right. lot of ways. Now, so, but as, uh, as
0: I pointed out, the, 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 there was that era, though, with Hemingway and Sloppy Joes that had given Key West a certain tropical escape aura, though, No, ha- had it not?
4: Yeah, well, to some degree, and certainly in the Depression, um, that was one of the the uh, big uh, uh, things that the, the federal government tried to do was reinvent Key West as sort of this... Uh, uh, you know tropical getaway for uh, right. for Americans so uh, right. you know and there to some degree that was uh, successful but, uh,
0: but 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 but, um, but that's but that sort of lays out though the, the 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 fact that Key West was ripe for this kind of tiki hut image overall that brought, Buffett ended up bringing to the place with the song Margaritaville right
4: right right and there are a number of factors that happened in the early 70s that really um, kind of laid the groundwork for somebody like Jimmy Buffett to come in and, and do what he did. And that is, um, you know, the Navy did leave very shortly after, uh, Buffett arrived. And, and with that, the Key West economy collapsed, collapsed. Um, uh, they, city fathers sort of said, okay, we need to reinvent ourselves again. And, and uh, they turned their eyes toward tourism as uh, a, you know, the next big thing. Right. And, uh, so for somebody like Jimmy Buffett to, you know, become popular and, and, you know, write this song, Margaritaville, that everybody, you know, just assumed meant Key West. Right. Um, it was, uh, that really the, 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 I think everybody was was ready for that. Right. To Buff,
0: Buffett Jimmy Buffett was what Key West was waiting for in in the context yeah. <laughs> that you've just described. And why do you think Buffett had such an affinity for Key West and vice versa?
4: Well, uh, you know, that, that, that it's hard to say exactly what it was. He certainly came from a maritime family. You know, he grew up in in uh, Alabama coast of Mobile, Alabama. Uh-huh, right time family um, had tried his hand at music in Nashville found that a little uh, off-putting and and uh, not much to his liking uh, made his way to Miami and then through a friend came to Key West and had just found it to be magical for you know any number of reasons the people that right. were here the, 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 the quasi-tropical culture that was here and, of course, the water. Right. And uh, I think uh, he was just smitten with the place.
0: How responsible was he then for the offbeat cultural renaissance that Key West began to be known for in the wake of that song's phenomenon, Meeting Margaritaville, not to mention the tourism boom that followed? How responsible was he?
4: (laughs) Well, quite a bit. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, uh, uh, you know, there has really been no bigger... Uh, a musician uh, in, in popularity than uh, Jimmy Buffett, you know, uh, to come out of Key West. And, and uh, you know, he, he took all those things that he loved about this place, enhanced them and, you know, popularized them and put them into the, uh, the public consciousness, right. really, you know, on, right. a, on a national scale.
0: And we, we, is it is it correct then to say that Key West really wouldn't have been able to form the unique sense of self it's so famous for today without that Jimmy Buffett factor or, or, or just how important was that?
4: Well, yeah, and I think what he did, you know, and with Margaritaville was somewhat redefine Key West because, um, you know, sort of this this. Uh, lazy sort of, uh, you know, hanging out on the beach and, you know, that's how everybody lives their lives. Key West was never that, uh, before, mm-hmm. you know, to, to any degree. And, uh, um, I think that whole concept of sort of the laid back Key West, um, really you can almost uh, pinpoint it to Margaritaville. Right. Um, and, and so the modern concept, and when I say, you know, last, 45 years uh, of of the island um, I think is is largely attributable to uh, to it, it really one song in a lot of ways. Right. so it's a huge impact
0: but, but but what what besides that you know sitting on my front porch singing, strumming my six string, that hanging out on the hammock you know aspect of Key West life, right. what other though important facets of the Key West sense of self, are are very important that he also maybe helped to foster. Besides, again, the the laid back aspect.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, certainly that's that's uh, uh, the big one. But uh, you know, I mean, just the the geography, the the uh, the sort of foreignness of of Key West. I mean, I you know, Key West is different from just right. about any other city in the U.S. And I think that uh, was something that. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Buffett used
0: right that and, that, that uh, sense of openness and inclusiveness that the conch yeah. the conch, uh, world, let's say, uh, offers to the right. world. He's 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 kind right. of responsible for that as well. No,
4: well, yeah, and to some degree, of course. You know, I mean, Key West has always been a a, a maritime town, a, a, a port, and you know, lots of different people coming in and out over you know a, a couple hundred years. Um, so there is sort of that openness naturally just in being a, a, a maritime port, but yeah, Buffett absolutely, uh, worked with that. And, and, uh, uh, well, you know,
0: just help popularize. Well, as you said, as you mentioned before, he he really glorified the water. I mean, and so uh, would the keys in South Florida, for example, have been as conscious about protecting the environment, our coral reef, the Everglades, etc. If not for Buffett's music and movement, as it were, raising that profile.
4: Yeah, well, absolutely. Let me say this: I think uh, you know uh, Buffett's uh, lifestyle, his CDs, actually helped sell a lot of boats in South Florida too. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, I... you know, in some ways, I yeah, that, that's one of uh, uh, Jimmy Buffett's, uh, I think, great legacies is uh, his his passion for uh, environmental causes, and yeah. really, uh, uh, you know, he was. Uh, Huge in protecting the manatees. Right. You know, uh, they had uh, in the 1970s they were kind of being forgotten, and uh, uh, Buffett took that on, and you know, f- uh, uh, for over 40 years has uh, headed the the Save a Manatee program here in Florida, mm-hmm. and and has uh, right. been very active in that. So you know, he sold a lot of boats, which in some ways are the the, you know, the enemies of the manatee, but he also worked. Uh, uh, right, very, very hard to uh, protect
0: them. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the Margaritaville legacy of Jimmy Buffett. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Now, I, I we, we unfortunately have to close here, uh, Corey, but I did want to also ask, at the risk of sounding like a suit and tie buzzkill, is it kosher for me to also ask: Is there perhaps an underside to Margaritaville, um, particularly as it pertains to South Florida and the Keys? I mean, has it encouraged a certain attitude here that because we're all about beaches and flip-flops, we we somehow don't have to take so seriously all the things those chumps up north worry about, like say good government and a high-wage economy? <laughs>
4: Well, yeah, you know, and I, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, to, to some measure, you can you can see it. Uh, a lot of people have chosen to live here uh, because of Jimmy Buffett's music and the lifestyle that that you know he, he espoused, and and uh, you know it it brought a lot of people down here, and I think people maybe will come here and not fully you know it, it doesn't always work out the way they right. think it will because right. <laughs> in a lot of ways you know you look back historically and i've been saying that before uh, it's, it's not margaritaville all right it's always in in the keys here uh it's been a lot of hard work to make uh make things go whether you were right. a wrecker or a sponger or a cigar maker yeah. um you had to work hard to be successful here and it's right. not just uh, you know having a drink and laying in the hammock that's not going to get you too far
0: well i'm glad i'm i'm glad you you pointed it out and that's a great point to end on dr Corey malcolm is the lead historian at the florida keys history center in key west Corey, many thanks
4: all right thank you Tim.
0: still to come cuba claims it's busted a trafficking ring that sent cubans to fight for russia this is the south florida roundup on wlrn <laughs> I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Back in May, this program was one of the first to discuss reports coming out of Russia that Cubans residing there were signing up to fight with Vladimir Putin's army against Ukraine. They were reportedly doing so in exchange for Russian citizenship as a way to avoid having to return to the repression and economic catastrophe back in Cuba. But this week, the Cuban government announced it's dismantled a Russia-based human trafficking ring that it says was rounding up Cubans on the island to fight for Russia. Last night, it said it arrested 17 people. Havana also took a rare swipe at its ally, Putin, and distanced itself from his disastrous, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Critics, however, especially here in Miami, say it's hard to believe the Cuban government didn't know about Cubans being recruited to fight for Russia. They say the regime's claim that it busted a human smuggling ring is simply a smoke and mirrors attempt to cover up its earlier complicity in sending fighters to Russia. There's never been a shortage of opinion here when news like this pops up in Cuba. So what do you think? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is Eric De La Fuente. He's a Cuban-American professor of international relations at Florida International University and an expert on Russia, Ukraine, and Eastern Europe. Eric, welcome to the South Florida Roundup.
3: Good uh, good afternoon, Tim, and thank you for the invitation.
0: Eric, to start here, I want to say that we reached out to the Cuban government to hear its explanation of all this. They did not respond. But I want to read two parts of the statement Cuban issued this week. First, quote, Cuba's enemies are promoting distorted information which seeks to tarnish the country's image and present Cuba as an accomplice to these human trafficking actions which we firmly reject end quote. And second, quote, Cuba is not part of the war in Ukraine end quote. Okay, Eric, the Cuban government is obviously very sensitive to this accusation that what they did this week was simply crack down on something they were actually taking part in. But why do so many people believe that that is precisely what's going on here?
3: Tim, uh, and, and as you reported, you were one of the few programs that back in May started reporting on some of the already reports that were coming out of there of Cubans being in the front, uh, whether fighting in Ukraine or trading, tra- training in Belarus. The Cubans have come out to do that because, of course, they understand that if they are perceived by the U.S., by the EU, and favoring Russia or, or being complicit being part of the actual conflict, uh, th- that could... Jeopardize it jeopardized its relations. But there is no doubt that to a, a certain level, the Cuban government first at the very least knew about this, At the second part played an instrumental part. Because we need to put this into context. Cuba has been one of the most staunchest allies of the Kremlin, of Russia, during this conflict. And in fact, Cuba's relations with Russia at this stage are at the strongest part, phase since the fall of the Soviet Union. Look, Cuba has led a lot of the propaganda narrative of the Kremlin in Latin America and a big diplomatic push to get African countries, Latin American countries, where Cuba has long-standing ties to help in the diplomatic support and votes, et cetera. And let's not right. forget, there's a long-standing relations between Cuba and Russia dating
0: back to the Soviet Union. So. Right. We we should remind our listeners that, according, you know, based on what you you're pointing out here, we should remind them that Cuba, like other governments in Latin America, both left wing and right wing, because let's not forget that former right wing president Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil has also been very supportive of Putin. That they have refused to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Cuba and Russia are, very, are of course, very close allies. What then do you think caused the Cuban government to suddenly start backing away from Vladimir Putin the way it did this week? I mean, did Cuba just decide its image was being hurt by all these reports of Cubans fighting for Russia in an invasion that most of the world has condemned?
3: Oh, the Cubans have always been very good about managing their brand and their image, right? And, uh, and I think they understand that it has... Important consequences. You're in the midst of a U.S. election, and, and, and the difference between the Biden administrations in terms of sanctions and a potential, let's say, a Trump, uh, the former Trump government uh, uh, administration was big. So they, they want to make sure that they cannot, the, that, that a Biden administration cannot engage so much with Cuba. If they see Cuba is seen as an internal part of this conflict with Ukraine, given that President Biden has taken a strong stance supporting Ukraine. The same thing with the EU deal with Havana. That's a, a number of the countries that are members of NATO, the European Union. Again, Ukraine is the centerpiece today in world news. And if Cuba uh, is an internal part of it, it would potentially damage a lot of economic advantages or other things. Right. But let's let's put into context one, one thing, Tim. In the last few months, you know, the high-level visits of, of Nikolai Patrushev, which is inner circle of, Krem, of, of, of Putin, not just uh, Secretary of the Russian Security Council to Havana, or Igor Selchin, uh, of course, uh, who's been a long time in our circle as well. And, and Cuba's prime minister going to going to Russia, spending 11 days, Cuba's defense minister, meeting with the with right. Russia's defense minister. So that, that that matters.
0: Right, we've seen a lot of that. But, but, but Eric, is there evidence, though, that the Cuban government was either taking part in or turning a blind eye to the actual recruitment of Cubans to fight for Russia? Is there actually evidence of that, though?
3: Look, I... Uh, you know, most of the Cubans that make it to the front go through the, the region of Riazán, which right. is sort of like I call it like the West Point. Right, and
0: point and, 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 it, and I should mention you're it. very familiar with Riazán. I've
3: right. been in Riazán four times. Uh, I have a lot of Russian friends and contacts for many years that have confirmed to me that they have seen Cuban recruits.
0: Right, because okay. that's that's the city southwest of Moscow where these Cuban mercenary recruits were taken, correct?
3: That's correct, and, right. by, by, and by the way, there's also been a long-standing Cuban presence in Moscow and Russia, for years of so the Soviet Union. I mean, and a lot of them were part of the military, so it's not uncommon. Remember, a lot of the Cubans either they 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 know no Russian the young ones do not, but they if you train in the in the military, in the, if you do the military service in Cuba, you do, you handle Russian arms as well, and, mm-hmm. but, and and so you're familiar. But the other thing is. There could be also networks, right, that the the, the Cubans have sanctioned or profit of, of. Cubans tend to leave the island for whatever opportunity to see anywhere. And they're promised salaries over $2,000 a month. Right. right. Yeah, you, And any
0: Cuban will do anything to escape the economic deprivation on that island <laughs> right now.
3: And when your salary is $25 a month, $2,000 right. a month. And for the Russian, it makes sense, right? So Russia's been aggressively recruiting in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan,
0: Kazakhstan. Right. But Kyrgyzstan. is, is, is Raisin, though, where this alleged human trafficking ring would have been based because that's where all of these Cuban mercenary recruits were ending up? Uh, you know I
3: don't know where it's based it's definitely where you go through the trainings right so okay. anybody well, it, most people that go through the, through the trainings go through the region because that's where the academies are and and and, and so on' not just the Cubans let's just be just to be and uh, put it in perspective this is not just for Cubans that go there right uh, but 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 that, 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 just to come back into the two main points one you know at the very least, the Cuban government had extensive knowledge the Cuban intelligence would not would not not know hundreds of cubans are flying to moscow going to Rezan. that is not possible and 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 it's very probable they were they were part of it and the other thing is the narrative that cuba is parting from russia that is so far from the truth i mean the cubans have been very good at making these statements to kind of show and and, and of course it's having right. results right because uh, few people like you are covering them in depth, right? But, I mean, the Cubans are very closely tied to the Kremlin and and the level of investments, the level of military Mm -hmm. cooperation today, and that is not changing in any way.
0: Right. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about Cuba's claim that it broke up a trafficking ring that was sending Cubans to fight for Russia. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Eric, as I mentioned at the outset, last night Cuba's interior ministry announced it had arrested 17 people in connection with this alleged operation that was trafficking Cuban mercenaries to go fight for Russia, but they gave no names or any other details. What do you think we're going to see in the coming days from the Cuban government uh, on this controversy?
3: You know, when I when I saw originally the, the press release right, the, state, the Cuban state media about uh, uh, discovering this ring, I predicted right away there will be arrests and there will be long sentences and so on. This is like when, for example, the Kremlin arrests an oligarch, right, and arrests him on corruption, right, even though they were doing the corruption with him, right. So even if you're part of it, I, I think you're going to see that, and I think they, they're they're going to tout that as, as part of taking action in this in this thing, and and I think some of the you know declarations. You know, especially to make sure to assure, for example, the Biden administration. Hey, look, I mean, we're trying to mend relations. We're not part of this conflict. Uh, you know, uh, at at this level. But uh, you know, there is there is other other evidence that points the other way. Cuba has played a role, for example. Of the Ru- of the russians presence in venezuela right in the Wagner group presence in Venezuela,
4: sure. in yeah. that
3: connection there are russian troops in nicaragua the, the cubans have were very big enablers on making that happen and you know is a part so it is not just about this announcement i usually we usually tend to cover you know naturally so an event or an announcement this is part of a bigger strategy and a bigger thing now does cuba want to tell this now of course not because it doesn't and do that but cuba has a long history of making money whether it's on doctors that they send away or athletes or or artists, etc. And they're making they're probably making money off this as well. Now part of this is also part of a bigger thing if they want other things from Russia. Russia sent millions right. of dollars in oil to Cuba over the last, you know, definitely, let's just say since the war started, uh they used to do it before. And part of it is the the Kremlin has a clear strategy. They don't want to mobilize more people inside Russia, right? Because it's not popular. Right. So they mobilise in Central Asia in Syria, in, in Cuba, in other parts, wherever they can get uh, uh, soldiers. And especially we can see that if, if the Wagner Group, for example, is integrator, integrated or, or debossed into something else, Mm-hmm. You need troops and not putting Russian citizens or oh, right. at least number of Russian citizens on the front Right. Is, is a good strategy.
0: Eric, we only have a minute left, but I, one thing I want I want to go, uh, sort of a historical thing here that's relevant. I, if it is true that the Cuban government is announcing this human trafficking ring as a way to cover up its own involvement in or its ignoring of Cubans going to fight in Russia, critics say we've seen this sort of thing from the, the communist regime before, right? And I'm specifically talking about the Ochoa brothers and the drug trafficking scam Back in the 1980s, uh, is is that relevant to to, to think about here? Uh, uh, absolutely, it's a it's a good example, it's a good analogy. I mean
3: that uh, Osho and the De La Guardia brothers, this was a part of the inner circle of the o, o Fidel regime.
0: Castro, right. Of yeah. Fidel
3: Castro, and they were put in charge on corruption charges and drug trafficking. Right. To think that the Cuban government did not know was not part of that.
0: Right. Really naive, right? I'm gonna, uh, Eric, 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 unfortunately, I'm going to have to yeah. leave it there. I apologize, but thanks not very good. much. Eric De La Thank Fuente you. is an international relations professor at Florida International University. Eric, again, thanks. Gracias. Thank you. Gracias. Finally on the roundup, We say hello this week to an emerging South Florida icon and goodbye to one that is passing away. I'm talking about Coco and the Clevelander. Last night, 19-year-old Coco Goff of Delray Beach won her semifinal match at the U.S. Open in New York. She'll play for that Grand Slam title tomorrow. Goff is the number six ranked player in the world. And that I mentioned she's only 19 years old. You wouldn't know it listening to her uncommonly mature reflections, like this one she shared with WLRN's Wilkin Brutus this year. I'm going to be starting my own foundation. Um, it's something I knew I was going to do um, pretty much since I was like maybe 10 years old. Um, I just, you know, didn't know that tennis would happen so fast, so I didn't know I would be able to have the opportunity to do it so soon, and I'm grateful. Um, I'm very. Um, I notice how much privilege I have in my situation, uh, so I kind of want to use that to help other people. As I said, a South Florida icon in the making. Unfortunately this week, we learned a South Beach icon is soon to leave us, the Clevelander Hotel. Its owners say the 85-year-old Art Deco Gem on Ocean Drive will will be replaced by a 30-story building offering affordable housing. It'll hurt a lot to see the Clevelander go, Perhaps it'll hurt less knowing this will help ease Miami's dire housing affordability crisis, but we'll have to wait and see if that really happens. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Pauli Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of Original Live Programming. Our director of Enterprise Journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend, and thanks for listening. Gracias. merci, Obrigado. WLRN Public Media.